0: Welcome to the Wonders History Podcast and to a new episode of the series looking at accounts of travelers, diplomats and merchants from the 16th century Mediterranean. Looking just now specifically at Cyprus and the eastern Mediterranean. In previous episodes we looked at accounts from before and during the Ottoman conquest of Cyprus which occurred during the fourth Ottoman-Venetian war. For next few episodes i'll want to look at a few accounts of individuals who went to cyprus after 1573 in order to see how rapid the transition of power from venetian to ottoman control was in cyprus and to observe if if and how the eastern mediterranean kingdom recovered after what had been a brutal and destructive war if you are new to the channel please make sure to subscribe and hit that notification bell it really does help the channel a lot let us resume Today we look at the account of one Signor de Villamont in Excepta Cipria, page 171. In the intro bit, we get a description and we find out that he left his home in the Duchy of Brittany in June 1588. He traveled in Italy and embarked at Venice on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He visited Cyprus on the voyage to Jaffa and again on his way from Tripoli to Damietta. His return journey from Alexandria to Venice took him no less than 108 days without setting foot on land. And at Venice, he was detained 37 days in quarantine. His voyages occupied 39 months. The distance covered, he reckons, at 5,658 leagues. In another side note, we find out that the work which these extracts are translated, was published at Paris in 1596, again at Arras in 1598, and at Rouen in 1612. From the very beginning, we get a few details about the arrival to Cyprus, quote, on Ascension Day, Thursday, May 11, 1589, about midday, we arrived at the first point of the Kingdom of Cyprus, which seamen call Cape of Saint-Piphany, and coasting along came the near to Bafo. This city is situated in a fair plain close to the sea, and much set off to landwards by low hills. But it is half ruined, so it profits little by the beauty of its sight, and the fruitlessness of the soil. Their journey continued, saying, quote, The master took us to Limiso, a village in a beautiful plain and close to the sea. The houses are built chiefly of earth, covered with rushes and fashions, on a single story and so low that one must stoop to mount two or three steps. They make their doors thus low so that Turks on horseback or an angry crowd may not enter. I'll want to make a side note there because it offers some very interesting insight and the fact that a Frenchman would mention this Well over a decade after the Ottoman conquest of Cyprus, it's quite interesting that houses would be built in such a way to deter mounted Ottoman troops from entering one house. The account resumes and says, quote, We landed and found on the beach a number of Turks who had come to see us. They all had in their turbans roses, violets, and other flowers. After having a good look at us, they left on horseback with their Cadi, all carrying a scimitar at their side and a long dart or javelin in their hands, some had a bow and a quiver with an iron mace hung at their saddle bow, and it is this array they paraded all the afternoon, managing their horses, as is their wont, with graceful dexterity. Then we walked about the village. There was nothing worthy of mark. About five years since an earthquake threw down all the houses, which have been rebuilt by the Turks after the fashion of pigsties. The poor Christians are no better lodged than the Turks, or even worse. They have indeed built a little church 15 feet high, where they say the mass of the Greek rites. I had dined with a Greek monk, a native of Cyprus, with whom I used often to talk on the ship. He spoke very good Italian and was well disposed towards me, and begged him to take me to see what was most remarkable in the island. He agreed to do so, and we hired each a donkey. The next morning, early we landed, mounted our beasts and started, attended by a janissary on horseback. I want to make a short pause here and to notice something quite interesting because before the Ottoman conquest of Cyprus, um, in general, if one had traveled, um, say to Famagusta or Nicosia, depending on the social status, uh, if it was a military person and whatnot, um, but if you were a merchant or a traveler, you would not get escorts throughout the island. It was pretty there was there was a freedom of movement so to speak fast forward to what is it 1589 now and we see that if you are in cyprus as a french person or maybe even as a venetian or spanish person you need to be escorted by a janissary which shows that there's an element of um, security imposed upon the island as the ottomans at the time, would have thought that there could be security risks. Um, Maybe Venice would have wanted to retake Cyprus, although that was not very probable. Um, The Venetians were confronted with economic problems then and would not have risked uh, restarting yet another war with the Ottomans that they could not win. But it shows a level of care and attention that the Ottomans would guard cyprus the way they uh, are in this case the text goes on to say quote, and so conversing together we arrived at the abbey of saint nicholas it is close to the sea and remains almost whole having received no injury from the turks when they took cyprus from the venetians in 1570 but they slew or drove away the monks of the saint basil who occupied it nor have they from that time forth allowed anyone to dwell there so bitterly Do they hate the Christian faith? My companion told me that the said monks kept a number of cats on purpose to catch the snakes, which are found all about the plain in greater numbers than in any other part of the island. Close to the abbey and The Cape is a large fishery, round and nearly two leagues or six Italian miles in circuit. There is one little entrance by which the seawater and the fish enter. To take the fish, they shut this entrance and open it again to admit others. The Grand Signor gets 6,000 ducats yearly from the farmers, who are obliged by ancient usage to give to the Abbey all the fish they catch on the day and night of St. Nicholas's Feast or they would not take a single fish all year through. But now that the abbey is abandoned, the farmers pay this due to the Church of the Greeks. I must not forget to say that in August, the villagers round Cape Delegate catch a great number of falcons. They have to do this at their own cost, and as soon as they catch one, under pain of death, they are obliged to take it to the pasha, and the pasha must send it to the Grand signor. It may not be, be altogether out of place to say something of the order taken by the Turks for a newly conquered province. The first thing done is to write in a book the number of the inhabitants and the name and surname of each individual. This book is taken to Constantinople where the Sultan fixes what tribute he chooses, generally two ducats a head, without counting other dues and taxes which he may impose children only under the age of fifteen are exempt, and a rule is observed throughout the empire that though half his subjects be dead, his revenue is nowise diminishes for the living must pay for the dead, but after the first numbering, though the people grew to be half as many again, the revenue increases not so long story short, if a family has uh, any deceased members in it, uh, the remaining members of the family have to pay for them as well. Villamont goes on to say, Quote, but to return to my subject, leaving Cape Delegate, we journeyed on towards a mountain which produces the best wines in Cyprus, and here we found a very large village where the Turks have never set foot, for it lies in a little valley covered with trees of divers kinds, olives, cypresses, carobs, and others, and all along the mountain are many vineyards. Uh, the wine will keep The common people will tell you for 30 years, and if you drink only two pegs of this in the morning, you can easily pass the rest of the day without meat or drink. So remarkable is the strength and goodness of the wine. But taken in excess, it burns you up at last. And coming down from the mountain, we saw a very beautiful garden belonging to a Greek Christian. A wide stream passes through it, bordered with palms, oranges, date palms, lemons, and other excellent fruits. You see them on the trees, some ripe, some in flower, some approaching maturity, just as those of the kingdom of Naples. But the Cypriot oranges are twice the size of the Italian. We dined in this garden in Turkish fashion and then went down to see the sugar canes and the houses where they are made into sugar. Eventually, Villamont has to part ways with the Greek monk who had been his guide throughout the island, uh, who, once hearing that the plague had ceased at Famagusta, hired a donkey and, without bidding um, even a goodbye, started for his home. So from this point onwards, Villamon goes on by himself to explore the rest of Cyprus. And it's quite clear from what he says that he's not very fond of the, Tur- the Turks there, Traditions, their superstitions, as he says, and um, a lot of their culture. He then goes on to talk about the uh, natural resources of um, Cyprus, the wealth in terms of agriculture, uh, and how the Turks manage to benefit from that, as the Venetians did before them. He then goes on for uh, quite a bit about the coins and currencies. In Cyprus, there is an extensive book looking at, uh, I think it's part of a series of books looking at the monetary policy of France in the 16th century, uh, which makes an interesting point because Cyprus was one of the main kingdoms in the 16th century where silver uh, predominated, not gold in terms of um, local currencies. And it was an important nexus point, a a, a link-up point between Venetian trade and the uh, Levant, but now it was incorporated within the Ottoman Empire. so Levantine trade and Cypriot trade um, became much closer together. We then find out that Villamon visited Jerusalem and Damascus and that on September 10th, 1589, he embarked at Tripoli for Damieta. Eight days later he, he reached uh, Limassol ill with fever, and remained in Cyprus until October 6, 1589, when he sailed again for Damietta. So all all in all, this is a a very interesting account showing us a few details of what life would have been like in 1589 in Cyprus, more than 15 years after the Ottomans had conquered it from what used to be um, uh, a Venetian-held kingdom as with many of these texts, um, there is a lot of personal opinion, uh, personal animosities and prejudices and all of that. Uh, But we can draw some uh, conclusions from this, some objective conclusions that, for example, the security around Ottoman Cyprus was quite thorough. They were uh, quite careful to see who, landed and who was able to travel within this now province region of the Ottoman Empire. There's another observation saying that while a lot of monasteries remained in Cyprus, the Greek Orthodox ones, not many of them were um, inhabited and were actually quite deserted. And there are, there'll be um, a few observations from um, another text which I studied in the past, uh, in which, for example, it was quite interesting in Nicosia, the only soldiers who could enter the city uh, on horseback would be only Ottoman soldiers and no one else. So, all in all, a quite interesting. Um, account on Ottoman Cyprus towards the end of the 16th century I have uh, a few episodes and accounts left to talk about I I believe it's between two and three I'm not sure yet and after that I will wrap up this series and then hopefully move on to the next project um, which I talked about in the um, the Christmas update episode thanks for listening to this episode Uh, Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already. And until the next time, all the best.